I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, could a psychedelic-induced spiritual or mystical awakening contribute to our mental health and well-being? We examine how we can induce experiences that people call spiritual or mystical. And actually, psychedelics induce a broad range of experiences. And it seems as though certain features of these experiences predict who will benefit most from them in a long-term way. And later, from a common horse tranquilizer to club drug and trendy spa treatment, the nature and potential of ketamine. It could be that we are using ketamine the wrong way. Potentially, if you think about using it the way right now psilocybin and MDMA is being considered, that it may be a more effective treatment for depression. The future of psychedelics as spiritual experiences and mental health treatments. That's all ahead on Life Examined. Before we jump in, I'd like to give a quick shout out to all of you who've joined our Life Examined Facebook group. One of our goals this year is to build a more connected and active community of listeners. Every week we post articles, ask questions, share our favorite quotes, and a lot more. So if you're an engaged listener, please find us on our group page. We have a link to it at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. So now to today's show. The psychedelic revolution continues. Just last week, another study out of the UK using brain imagery showed clear changes in brain activity from patients treated with psilocybin. Here in the US, some researchers at Johns Hopkins University are exploring how altered states of consciousness are impacting our mental well-being. The 19th century philosopher William James studied the same question, writing the influential book The Varieties of Religious Experience, which still serves as the academic foundation for the study of these occurrences. So what do we know about our ability to have spiritual, religious, or mystical experiences? Are they common? And what triggers them? According to Professor David Yadin, one of the most consistent ways to induce such an experience is through taking psychedelics. And when this spiritual state is achieved, it can have profoundly positive impacts on our mental health, especially when it comes to things like depression and addiction. Yaden is assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and the author of Rituals and Practices in World Religions. His forthcoming book is titled The Varieties of Spiritual Experiences. David Yaden, welcome to Life Examined. Great to be here. So just a moment ago, I mentioned the work of William James in that famous book, which is one of those, I'll admit, that sits on my bookshelf and I haven't actually gotten around to read. But I know how important and foundational it is when we think about these altered states of consciousness. Can you tell us a little bit about its importance? I'm so glad you bring that book up. I have a book coming out in a couple of months on the varieties of religious experience. Uh, We call it the varieties of spiritual experience. It's sort of a 21st century update. But this book is absolutely foundational for the study of altered states of consciousness that we call religious, spiritual, or mystical. William James provides us with a number of insights into how we could scientifically study these kinds of experiences. The first thing he does is say we should take certain questions off the table because we won't be able to address them scientifically. And those are theological and philosophical questions about whether these experiences point to something real, you know, whether or not there is a a real God, if someone has a God experience. He says, as scientists, we, we shouldn't look at that because we can't actually answer that question. 
But we can address all of these very, very interesting questions related to how these experiences are triggered, what kinds of experiences people report, how they feel to people, and maybe most importantly, how they impact people's lives. How did this help you think about the essence of a spiritual experience, which is something you've looked at so closely? It's a very difficult question, these definitional questions. People report changes to their subjective awareness, you know, what we call an altered state of consciousness. And people attribute different things to them. They call them different things. And so some people will say uh, that alteration to my consciousness uh, was religious. Mm. You know, I, I felt connected to God. Uh, some people will be a bit more abstract and they'll say, I felt connected to something beyond my usual sense of self, but I'm not sure what. Uh, we, you know, we might call that a spiritual experience. Some people report very intense experiences where they feel at one with all things, and we typically call those mystical experiences. And so there's a relationship between how someone feels, how they report feeling, and what they attribute to that experience, the meaning they give the experience. Do you sense that William James was was noticing not just what was happening in the West, but that this this experience that you're talking about is one that appears to exist all over the globe? William James definitely made an effort to look across time and cultures and different religions, although he was definitely situated in his own time, and so he tended more so to focus on people in the U.S. and Europe and mm -hmm. largely Christians. But he was very interested in looking and cataloging uh, these experiences across the world. And so that's something that we see as our task now as contemporary scientists to make good on that intention and to truly look across the globe at uh, different kinds of experiences in different cultures. What you find is a bit of a mixed bag. Some people are splitters and some people are lumpers on okay. this question. Some people see startling similarity across time and culture and religion. Uh, other people <clears throat> see difference. They see very, very different kinds of reports that involve different religious concepts from, from different religions and different cultures. So I think that this is an empirical question and it's a scholarly question for us to address is how universal are these experiences and how culturally situated are they? What do we know about the science of these experiences, whether they're mystical, religious, spiritual, what, what is happening in the brain from what we can tell? Yeah, I think our neuroscience is still uh, at a pretty beginning level of understanding these experiences. There's been some interesting work looking at advanced meditators and contemplatives like nuns who report being able to put themselves into a state of, of unity uh, or connection with God. It seems as though uh, there's some relationship between these kinds of experiences and the temporal parietal junction, this broad region of the brain uh, that appears to be responsible for mapping the boundaries between oneself and everything else. But I really want to be cautious about 
providing a kind of neuroscientific explanation because they often are uh, highly simplistic. The brain is incredibly complex and these experiences will ultimately be highly complex neurobiologically. There is some reason for hope uh, because we're able now to induce these kinds of experiences in laboratory settings using substances like psychedelics. And so that may allow us to get a bit more specific about what's going on in the brain. Before we get to psychedelics in, in just a moment, are there any cultures around the globe that have fascinated you in terms of the experiences they claim to have and, and what, what they're like? It's a great question. Uh, I'm easily fascinated. <laughs> and so there's a number of cultures that I think uh, absolutely fascinate me about the kinds of experiences they report. And again, we're back to this question of how similar are these experiences across culture and how different are they? I think one culture that's particularly fascinating to me is our own. Mm. <laughs> and Gallup polls show that these, these experiences are surprisingly common among people even today. And so there's questions that Gallup has put out over the decades asking things like, have you ever felt close to a spiritual force that seems larger than yourself? Or have you ever had a, a spiritual or mystical experience? And you get pretty consistent endorsements of around one third of the population, both in the US and the UK, wow. saying, yeah, I've had something like that. I've had an experience of that kind. But we don't talk about these experiences very often. Uh, sometimes people have had a profound experience of this kind, and even the person's partner or spouse or family doesn't know about it. Well, let's now explore this link between psychedelics and, and these mystical or spiritual experiences. This is, this is one of your uh, big topics of research. So how did you get interested in this and kind of begin to welcome us into the link here? Yeah, so in my doctoral work at the University of Pennsylvania, I was very interested in brief experiences that provide long-term, lasting, positive benefits. So we were able to do a lot of research asking people about these experiences and to describe them and to take psychometric questionnaires. But really, to do good scientific work, you want to be able to induce these experiences in a controlled setting. I tried several ways to do that uh, using uh, videos or virtual reality or meditation or brain stimulation, and none of them really worked. And so psychedelics, the work that had been going on and is still going on at Johns Hopkins by Roland Griffiths and others, that seemed to be really the only game in town in terms of being able to induce these kinds of experiences under controlled laboratory settings. And so that's what brought me into psychedelic research, and, and that's what I do today, is we examine how we can induce experiences that people call spiritual or mystical. And actually, psychedelics induce experiences that of, of all kinds, of, of a broad range of experiences. So I don't want to suggest that all of them are spiritual or mystical, but people certainly do... Uh, put these labels on their experiences. And it seems as though certain features of these experiences predict who will benefit most from them in a long-term way. And so feeling these deep feelings of unity or feelings of oneness with all things, 
that's one of, of several subjective features that appears to be associated with long-term benefits. Can you talk about that a little bit more and, and why those are such predictors of, of mental health or, or just a positive longevity? What, what's behind that? It's not exactly clear. Uh, and so, again, you know, feelings of unity are just one of several different predictors. Others include uh, feelings of insight or uh, changes to one's mental flexibility or feelings of meaning. And so this is this, the subject of ongoing scientific research is to try to understand what it is about these subjective qualities that appears to be predictive of long-term benefit. Uh, people have different views. Uh, one of them I, th I think is important is that uh, feelings of connection uh, matter to us mm -hmm. as human beings, feeling socially connected, a feeling of belonging is profoundly important for our mental health. And these experiences seem to provide uh, feelings of connection on a very, very deep level. So I think that's probably part of the picture. But again, we really need to do more research to understand the mechanisms. What's interesting, I mean, when you think about one of the most pervasive disorders in America, it'd be something like major depressive disorder. And the feeling there is one of isolation often of being stuck within oneself, of, of sinking down. And what's missing for so many is this connective quality, this idea of being a part of something much larger. And as I'm sure you can tell us, a lot of these substances are used to treat things like depression now. That's exactly right. Yeah, there's very promising yet very preliminary studies showing that psychedelics like psilocybin, for example, is a potent medicine for mood and substance use disorders. So depression is a kind of mood disorder. But interestingly, psychedelics appear uh, to be um, important factors in reducing substance use disorders. So people like Matthew Johnson are, are studying this at Hopkins. And it's interesting that psychedelics appear to be uh, so useful in treating these disorders um, across this broad spectrum of disorders. Usually uh, medications are effective only for one or maybe a few disorders, but psychedelics seem interesting in that they appear to be effective across a fairly broad range of disorders. Again, these studies are preliminary and we need much more uh, rigorous uh, replication research before we draw firm conclusions. The substance abuse one always really fascinates me. And I think about early psychological work, Carl Jung, who wrote that maybe the only way through severe cases of alcoholism was some form of a religious or spiritual experience. And some, they say that was foundational in the creation of AA which relies upon a higher power and connecting to something much greater than oneself. And to me, this just seems to fit perfectly into the conversation that we're having. Would you agree? I think that's right. And, you know, Carl Jung actually took that from William James. Mm. <laughs> so part, there we go. Describe <laughs> uh, the second half of Carl Jung's career is, is less Freudian influenced and more influenced by William James. 
but that's a bit of a tangent. But yes, Bill Wilson, who founded AA, uh, was in correspondence with Carl Jung, and Carl Jung did, in fact, uh, say something uh, like that. And it's an interesting feature of these experiences that they appear to have this anti-addictive quality. Uh, there's many, many uh, reports of people in recovery programs, uh, not everyone by any means, <laughs> but there's a substantial number of reports of uh, dramatic spiritual or mystical type experiences uh, result resulting in sobriety. Which psychedelics are you particularly interested in when we think about the treatment of these different disorders? Well, I think all of them need to be tested. <laughs> this mm -hmm. is a broad range of substances. You know, right now, psilocybin is the psychedelic that's being tested most, but there's decades of research at the University of Zurich looking at LSD. People in uh, London, Imperial College London, are starting to look at uh, DMT and 5-MeO-DMT. People in Brazil are looking at ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. I, I think we have an opportunity to understand a class of substances that has been unfairly maligned. And um, basically, there's been a period of prohibition against these substances. I think now we have an opportunity to try to scientifically understand them. The key with understanding this research, though, is that it demands that our society do something it's not very good at, which is to think in an evidence-based and nuanced way. We've seen decades of extreme alarmism that's divorced from the data, talking about how these substances are supposedly very dangerous. Uh, that's wrong. Uh, you know, that was way overblown. However, these these substances and the experiences they induce can be risky. That's important to note because right now uh, the pendulum has swung the other way and now we're getting extreme over-the-top statements of enthusiasm. And that's also wrong. <laughs> these, these substances are not cures for mental disorders. They do have risks. And so what's required is a nuanced and evidence-based perspective on psychedelics, which is to say that there are real risks, but there appears to be genuine promise uh, for their use to treat certain mental disorders like mood and substance use disorders. I want to shift gears and think about the role of these substances in cultures all over the world. Uh, you mentioned there's research going on all over the place, but um, take ayahuasca or a number of other cultures. What, what were the role of these substances in these cultures all over the globe? Yeah, it's, it's difficult to quantify exactly how long these substances have been used in ceremonial or ritual contexts. But it looks like in Mexico, it's centuries uh, at least, and perhaps longer. In South America, ayahuasca has been used for centuries and perhaps longer. And there's some arguments that even in ancient Greece, a kind of psychedelic was used in the Eleusian Mysteries, which was a ritual that is well documented. And 
LSD was synthesized independently in Switzerland in 1938. And so there's a fascinating cultural, historical story to be told uh, about the use of psychedelics in, in very different settings. It is interesting, though, to note that this these particular substances were often associated with a religious or spiritual context. And so is that a kind of historical accident that it just so happened that these experiences uh, and these substances um, were associated almost by accident with religious or spiritual contexts and that they then gained these connotations, these religious or spiritual connotations? Or is there something inherent to these experiences that lends itself to a religious or spiritual interpretation? Hmm. I find that a fascinating question, and it's one for scholars and scientists to try to understand. Are there any cultures in particular that, that you've looked at or, or wondered about? Well, I, I think that there's a lot of good reasons to focus on ayahuasca use mm. in South American countries. Uh, I have a colleague um, who, who may be looking into this, uh, Sandeep Nayak. This is a very interesting question because different groups living relatively close to one another can have very different traditions around the use of ayahuasca. And so it lends itself to very interesting scientific and anthropological investigations. Can you say a little bit more about those? Do you know a little bit more? No, I think we need to learn more. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the question at stake, though, is how much does culture impact the psychedelic experience versus how much is inherent to the way that these particular substances interact with our perceptual and cognitive systems? This is a really deep question, right? Mm. You know, are, is culture shaping these experiences to a very large degree? Or if any human being were to take these substances pretty much anywhere, uh, would they have more or less similar kinds of experiences? Right. And this is maybe where the question of ritual is so important, because, you know, when we think about well, what we know about a psychedelic experience is that it's the set and the setting, mindset or setting to, to go into the experience. And to me, ritual provides so much of that. I mean, can you, can you talk about how those are so interlinked? Yeah, it's very interesting. Depending on how you answer the question, that we've we've been discussing here about the role of of cultural impact versus inherent kind of effects you might see ritual playing different roles so if you think that there are these inherent effects you might see ritual as kind of providing a safety or a, a safe container to have a particular kind of experience if you think though that that cultural influences play a really massive role in shaping the experiences uh, then ritual is a way to supercharge cultural expectations because you have a very deliberate set of, of practices that are informed by concepts and a social setting where people share the same beliefs and ideas. So I think most people will agree that it's some blending of the two is the, the the real answer cultural impacts are, are surely important 
on the experiences and there appear to be certain biological effects that will occur inherently. And so I think ritual probably plays both of these roles, both in providing a safe setting as well as shaping and informing the experiences themselves. Hmm. Thinking of ritual and these substances, how, how do you make sense of something like Burning Man, which may sound kind of funny, but, but these massive gatherings around the country that seem to have only grown over the last couple decades in which there's a tremendous amount of psychedelic use and people feel as if they're going there for ritual or for some connection or cleansing and then they return back to the regular worlds after that, perhaps feeling changed on some level. Just sociologically or anthropologically, do these things pique your interest at all? Absolutely. You know, when we think about ritual, or even when we think about words like anthropology and sociology, we tend to think in othering terms and we forget to turn these lenses on uh, ourselves and our own practices. And I think you point to a contemporary ritual that should absolutely be studied as such. You know, there are certain uh, practices and, and guidelines and norms that exist at a place like Burning Man. And so I think it makes sense to think of it as a contemporary ritual and one that would certainly inform the kinds of experiences that people report in a place like that. Do you find that the use of psychedelics depends on the therapeutic setting available? I mean, is, is going to Burning Man and doing psilocybin the same as sitting with a therapist in you know a closed session in which one is focusing on issues? There's some big differences there. Psychedelics when used in recreational settings compared to other recreational substances are relatively safer than than many of them so the alarmism that we've seen in the past is unwarranted but there are definitely risks to taking psychedelics and those risks are increased in a recreational setting hmm. there's a number of things that we do in a clinical setting that reduce those risks one of them is screening. So we know that there are certain people who probably shouldn't take a psychedelic if they have personal or family history of psychotic or bipolar illness. Uh, people are at elevated risk if, if they take psychedelics uh, who fit that category. And so we do medical and psychiatric screening. Uh, we also do preparation where we talk to people and, and tell them about the experience, you know, that, that anything you experience will pass. Uh, the whole experience will be over in a mm. few hours. It's not going to last forever. Correcting mix misconceptions that some people may have about psychedelic experience can be a powerful way of allaying anxiety. And just to get to know the person who will be with you when you actually have your experience. When people have their experience, they're on a comfortable couch, there are medical staff available, uh, there are two people in the room, uh, and you, you're provided with headphones so you can listen to music and eye shades. Uh, and so 
this setting is really set up to be as safe and supportive as possible. And so accordingly, the, the risks go way down in these clinical settings. That doesn't mean they go away entirely, though. Uh, any kind of intervention will carry risks, and psychedelics are no exception to that. Mm. What are your thoughts then on the kind of the modern day shaman who is leading circles or quote unquote therapy groups? I mean, certainly up and down the West Coast, folks that, that maybe don't have clinical training, but are setting up shop and offering these types of experiences. Yeah, this is a living experiment that we are witness to, and we will try to understand. I think there's probably a huge amount of variation in the, the safety and social support offered in these settings. Uh, we're trying to study some of these contexts now. Um, I think that they're likely to be less safe than a clinical setting where people have been psychiatrically and medically screened and a lot of social support is, is provided. Um, I think that this is just an open question as to what these contexts will look like. And I'd urge extreme caution in engaging uh, with, with these contexts just because there are so many unknowns. Where do you think the future of all of this research is going? What is it going to look like in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, the scientist in me and the optimist would like to say that we'll have a much better understanding of the neurobiological and psychological mechanisms that explain why these experiences can have such lasting positive impacts. That would be wonderful. And that's what I hope for. And that's what I try to do at work every day. Uh, in terms of their potential clinical application, I'm not sure. It looks like from these preliminary studies, there's real genuine promise in treating mood and substance use disorders. So it wouldn't surprise me in the next decade if psychiatrists are able to prescribe psychedelic experiences as treatments. Uh, in terms of how all of this will play out in, in society at large and culture, uh, I have no idea, of course. My, uh, I, I have a lot of worries about that, a lot of worries that, that keep me up at night <laughs> because I think psychedelics, again, ask our society to do something it's not very good at, which is to think in a nuanced and evidence-based way and to avoid these extremes of, on the one hand, demonization and alarmism, and on the other hand, uh, over-enthusiasm. So it remains to be seen. I'm cautiously optimistic, but I have a lot of worries as well. Do you have any sense of what some of the future psychedelics that may be studied more? For example, I, you know, I, I read about things like DMT, for example. What, what is that drug? What does it do? Yeah, DMT and 5-MeO-DMT uh, are both substances that have acute effects that are much shorter. So LSD will acutely last for 10 to 12 hours. Psilocybin, which is in mushrooms, uh, this lasts for about 6 to 7 hours or so. 
whereas DMT and 5-MeO-DMT, the acute effects are more on the order of 20 minutes mm. or so. And so scientifically, they provide a really interesting opportunity uh, to study how even briefer experiences may have long-lasting effects of various kinds. Uh, whether these briefer experiences are capable of inducing uh, things like neuroplasticity on the neurobiological level or influence brain circuits uh, or result in increased positive mood and well-being and decreased depression and substance use. Yeah, so this remains to be seen. I think this the the, the next frontier probably involves looking at these shorter acting uh, psychedelics. Is there any research that shows that if if at the heart of some of these experiences is what one might think of as a spiritual experience, that maybe one should look for that uh, that experience in any way that they can? It ne shouldn't necessarily be through psilocybin or any other substance, but that it's it's one that should be found wherever you can get it in nature or, or surfing or in music and the effects can be very similar yeah i mean with my research i i see a lot of it as very descriptive and so i follow william james in looking at experiences people are already having and trying to understand them better and so I don't advocate for people to go out and, and, and find a spiritual or, or mystical experience. Uh, I don't think we have enough evidence to, to support that. We haven't done trials where we go tell people to seek out uh, a spiritual or mystical experience, for example. And so just because uh, there's positive effects associated with a certain experience, that doesn't mean uh, people should necessarily rush out and try to find those experiences. Um, but the things that you mention, you know, uh, things like being in nature, enjoyable hobbies, exercise, meditation, you know, we have good evidence uh, that these are healthy and enjoyable things to do. And, you know, if you happen to have a spiritual or mystical type experience doing them, uh, then I hope at that point people will look into the kinds of scientific research that I'm doing as a way to understand the experience so that they know that they're not alone in having this kind of experience, mm. uh, that they're not indicative of uh, mental disorder usually, and that in fact people benefit from them and sometimes profoundly so. Yeah, and I mean, perhaps even communal experiences, um, dance or yoga, music. I, I think of just examples where people feel that connected, that connectedness to others, to themselves. That these can also be tremendous tools in in just helping oneself. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I think awe is an experience related very much to, to spiritual and, and mystical type experiences. And I think when we look at what we do in our leisure time, or say going on a vacation, it's interesting to look at what we already do. Uh, we basically find 
ways to relax and engage in leisure and pleasure, you know, food and drink. Mm. But we also we we also seek out awe. So we'll generally go to a museum or a monument or a mountain with a sweeping view. And so I think awe is an emotion that is maybe a bit more accessible than a spiritual or mystical type experience. And it's something that we seek out anyway, and it's something that we could probably make more time for. I've been speaking with David Yaden, assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Thank you so much for the time today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And still to come, could ketamine be the next Prozac? Scientist Bita Mogadam on the history of the drug, from tranquilizer to club drug to pricey spa treatment. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, make sure to connect with us on our Facebook page. You can find that by going to kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. And when you're there, we'd love to know, what are your thoughts on the new psychedelic revolution? Is it a lot of hype or is this here to stay? We'll be back after this short break. This is Life Examined on KCRW. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard about the scientific research going into exploring altered states of consciousness using psychedelics and how these experiences are also linked to mental well-being. And one drug that's gotten a lot of attention recently is ketamine, or K. It's touted as a wonder drug for treating depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. And it's legal for medical use, approved by the FDA and available at a trendy clinic near you for the affordable price of six to $700. Bita Mogadam is a professor of behavioral neuroscience and psychiatry at Oregon Health and Science University and the author of Ketamine. Bita Mogadam, welcome to Life Examined. My pleasure. When was ketamine first invented? Uh, when does it start showing up? So it was synthesized in the 60s uh, by design um, because drug companies were interested in uh, synthesizing a safe anesthetic. Uh, there was a, a drug before it that was synthesized somewhat accidentally, the drug PCP, mm. or phencyclidine or angel dust. Um, initially, that was marketed as an anesthetic. And when that was given to individuals uh, at anesthetic doses, people woke up psychotic. So then uh, they pulled that out of the market. But they thought, you know, maybe we can synthesize something that's similar to PCP, but it's shorter acting. So that's how then uh, ketamine was synthesized um, with the idea that it would be an anesthetic that is safe because uh, anesthetics can be really dangerous because of their cardiovascular side effects. Um, whereas ketamine, even the PCP, uh, it's very difficult to die from overdosing it. It doesn't have side effects, uh, cardiovascular side effects. Anyway, so they synthesized it. It uh, looked good in the um, in clinical trials, and it was approved um, 
and entered the market in uh, as an anesthetic in early 70s and very quickly started getting used uh, in Vietnam uh, by medics because clearly there was an acute need for uh, use of anesthetic in combat and here was a drug that was helping them put individuals under really quickly for minor procedures and it was also discovered then that it also has anti-pain and potentially mood enhancing effects as well. Interesting. So how would you describe the sensation of being on ketamine? What does it do to the body? It is called a dissociative anesthetic. Uh, so unlike other anesthetics that uh, essentially slow down brain perception, uh, ketamine dissociates the outside or external input from what your brain is processing. It's uh, I, I have never experienced it, so I cannot, I can just tell you what, what it's generally other people describe yeah. it. But, but it's sort of, you sort of dissociate or not sense the pain as, as you go under ketamine. So you're, you're not perceiving what could be pain or, or yes. fear yes. or something like that. Yeah. Yes. And it, it, I think at high doses also just does stop transmission of pain by your, uh, by your uh, brain cells. Yeah. So eventually it becomes pretty popular and, and becomes a club drug. When does that happen? That happened in the 80s mostly. So it became a popular club drug and it has stayed pretty popular in Asia, um, especially among the younger generation as a, as a party or club drug. So talk about the, the recent resurgence in this drug. Uh, you know, we've covered a lot of the, the growth of the psychedelic therapy industry, but, but how does ketamine fit into the story? So ketamine was um, relatively accidentally, it was being used as a, a tool to study the effect of uh, uh, what we call a pro-psychotic drug, a drug that causes uh, transient psychosis in healthy individuals under controlled conditions in the laboratory for scientists to appreciate, hopefully to appreciate um, mechanisms that could go awry in schizophrenia or other illnesses that cause hallucinations and psychosis. So during those trials, it was noticed that it could potentially enhance mood. And then there was a very limited uh, control trial that was done in 2000 actually at Yale University, only seven uh, individuals with treatment resistant depression. These are folks who have had severe depression that's not responsive to classic anti uh, antidepressants like Prozac. So they were given a dose of ketamine experimentally and there was a relatively rapid improvement of their depressive symptoms. Hmm. So this then this paper was published, and of course it was very limited. Only seven subject, uh, only seven people were involved, and it was not a well-controlled study. But gradually, about five six years later, uh, a few other papers came out in the scientific literature showing larger scale studies with more patients, that, um, that showing that ketamine. Uh, and these were low doses, and single dose of ketamine could reduce the symptoms of depression, again, in individuals who had not responded to uh, available antidepressants such as Prozac. So that obviously created a fair amount of excitement because depression is a terrible illness. It affects nearly 10% of the population. And out of the millions who are affected, 
close to 60-70% do not respond to classic treatments with, with antidepressants. So why is it possible that ketamine would, would work in these cases of depression? Excellent scientific question. We really don't have a good idea. It's an area of, of, of active research. There are a lot of theories, but theories are cheap, so we don't have proof yet. So there are, one of the theories is that it very much works like ECT, the electroconvulsive therapy which actually is quite effective in treating depression in individuals who don't respond to antidepressants. And so ketamine, because it actually does, for lack of a better term, zap your brain. It excites the heck out of a group of cells in your brain. Potentially, it's working like that. Um, there are other ideas uh, that it's actually influencing how new memories are formed so you can forget about other memories. So there's a fair amount of research that's ongoing about it, uh, but we don't, we don't really have a good idea. It's one of the most interesting puzzles right now in depression research. I've also heard that ketamine may be used as a first-line treatment in acute cases of suicidality. Uh, is that something that you've heard as well? Yes, so that it is used for that purpose, but the clinical literature is mixed on that. There are some individuals who respond beautifully, but there are many who don't, uh, and there are some who actually get worse. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that is reported to happen with ketamine is relapse. So you feel okay for a while, but then there's pretty rapid relapse to uh, going back to how you felt before you had ketamine. I think this is one of the, the knocks on the drug is that it's very short-lasting uh, versus a, a number of other drugs that, that seem to kind of, uh, even more classical antidepressants that seem to kind of stay in the system longer. Uh, it's true. So uh, classic antidepressants don't work immediately. Most people have to take them for several weeks before they start to work. So clearly there has, something has to change in your brain uh, after a few weeks for them to start to work. Ketamine, in, in, in those individuals that it works, it works pretty quickly after a few hours or a day. But then it doesn't, yes, the effect wears off after a few days. So it's recommended that you actually take it two or three times a week which is could be worrisome because we really do not have any safety data on what taking ketamine two or three times a week indefinitely does to your brain. You know, just like, you know, you know with, with drugs like psilocybin and MDMA, there's a fair amount of interesting uh, studies coming out to show that if, if one dose of psilocybin or MDMA is given while individuals are receiving psychotherapy, so it's sort of a guided uh, drug exposure. That one dose is sufficient to reduce symptoms of depression and anxiety for months. And what's interesting is that there's ketamine could also work that way, just that we haven't recently tried it like that. Uh, there is an older uh, publication in the early 70s uh, that a group of uh, a couple of psychiatrists uh, used ketamine, a single dose, in about 100 patients who were in a in, uh, in a psychiatric ward, and they chose patients who did not have schizophrenia or psychosis, but patients who had depression and other psychiatric illnesses. And they combined one dose of ketamine with psychotherapy. And they reported that the majority of them, uh, close to 70, 80%, responded positively. And after a six-month follow-up, they were still feeling fine. Hmm. 
So it could be that we are we are using ketamine the wrong way. Potentially, if you think about using it the way right now psilocybin MDMA is being considered, that it may be a more effective treatment for depression. How do you feel about these kind of modern, you might call them like spa treatments of ketamine? Uh, can you talk about how those work? Because they seem to be popping up a lot and they're, they're quite expensive as well. Yeah, they're all over California, actually mm-hmm. all over the U.S. There are hundreds of them all over the country. Um, I, um, I, I, I am somewhat concerned because I think any, if any of these uh, clinics can essentially order ketamine because, you know, if you have a, a medical license, you can order it. The profit margin is pretty huge because they're ch- they charge somewhere between $500 to $700 per perfusion. And vulnerable people who are depressed may go to these and for one or two infusions per week for many, many months. So that's thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, and still go back thinking what well, this drug should work. The media is telling me it should work. It's not working. So they're going in without the proper care of potentially of a psychiatrist uh, or a therapist, um, without any safety data available for us to tell us what would, you know, two or three times of ketamine, uh, two or three times a week ketamine does to your brain if you keep doing it. Um, so yeah, they're not they're not regulated, and because of that, I am concerned. I'm not saying that all of them are shady, but because it's not a regulated business, and that right now, they, some of them could tap into the the vulnerability of some individuals. I think I am I am concerned. I I hope that they do start being regulated at least to some extent. How much of it do you think is just hype? I mean, because even when you read uh, a lot of mainstream newspapers, the New York Times, whatever, you listen to NPR, I mean, there are, it seems to me, weekly stories about the power of psychedelic therapy. It's just the hot thing right now. And my sense is that, as you say, people in desperate situations are trying to grasp whatever may give them relief. Yes. So I I need to make a distinction between psilocybin and ketamine because data for psilocybin is being generated. Mm. With ketamine, the data that we have shows that it actually works in a few percentage of people. So yes, so so much of it is is hype. Now, granted, it does work in some people and those people should be able to use it. Uh, But in general, the message that, oh, we have a new treatment, a magical pill for depression with ketamine, that is, that is inaccurate, and that's definitely a hype. What do you think the future of psychedelic therapy or just the use of psychedelics will look like as we move into what I think is this next really interesting phase of, of more clinical studies, more knowledge, more access? I think actually the future is bright. I think that if the studies are done carefully, which a lot of the studies related to MDMA and psilocybin are, not all of them, but most of them are being done very carefully. Um, and if the public and media waits for this, the, for the scientists and clinicians to actually conduct well-controlled studies, so we know exactly how well it works, who should be taking it, um, and that we have enough safety data available, then I think it's I think there's a lot of promise there. Mental illness is terrible. Depression is awful, and the cases are on the rise. We haven't had advances made in in discovering new drugs for these conditions for decades. 
So because of that, I think if, if psilocybin and these approaches are, are working, we should give it a tr we should give them a chance and hopefully they will work and enhance the lives of, of individuals who are suffering from these terrible conditions. I've been speaking with Abida Mogadam, Professor of Behavioral Neuroscience and Psychiatry at Oregon Health and Science University and the author of Ketamine. Bida, thanks for the time. Thank you so much. This was fun. Well, that's all we got for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for listening. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you soon.